Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. Welcome to Branches, uh, December 16th. If you are here with us, and uh, my name's John Eshelman. I'm here this morning uh, because our friend Boog had a little bit of a health scare last week, so kind of just want to catch you up real quick on that, because um, he was planning to be here and to share this morning, but asked if I would fill in because uh, last week he got pneumonia. And so for those of you that kn- know Boog, you know that uh, for him to come down with pneumonia is a little bit uh, different than it, for some of us to come down with it as he's had a double lung transplant. And if you don't know Bug, then you would just think that anybody that's had a double lung transplant having an infection in your lung would not be a good thing. So here's what happened. They took him to UCLA. They put him under very close watch, his whole team of doctors and the transplant specialists and were watching over him. And uh, in that time, they did some cultures on the bacteria that was in his lungs, and their main concern was, was his body rejecting the lungs, uh, the new set of lungs? And to our great uh, delight, it was not. So uh, we are praising God for that. Uh, Boog, if you know Boog, he was not happy about having to be at the hospital. <laughs> and uh, what was great, though, is they released him yesterday. And so he's home, and he made, it in, he made it home in time to see his daughter Karis perform at the Nutcracker Ballet that she was in. So just a beautiful picture uh, Anna showed me uh, that Stephanie sent of Boog and, and Karis hugging after her performance. And uh, so we're just praising God and being grateful that he is healthy, well, relatively, and, but he's home and on the mend, so... Uh, but you can continue to keep him in, his, in your prayers as, as you think about him. Uh, so this morning, you know, we've been in this series on the nativity, right? And, and I have to give a full confession. I have not been here for this series thus far. One, because I was traveling, and two, because we've had illness in our own family. And so sometimes that prevents us from being here, and that was the case. But... I went back and listened to the sermon, and I saw what Boog was doing, and he was kind of taking our general understanding of this nativity scene that we see all around. Like, if you drive on the 5 freeway going north and you look left, it's just lit up on the hill there, you know. Uh, I think Saddleback does that for us, but you, you see camels and a star and various figures that are uh, in this general nativity scene. We have in our house, because I have a two-year-old, a Playmobil nativity scene. Uh, made of plastic, and we have all kinds of little nativities here and there. Um, and there's, you know, there's the, what do we have? We have some animals in there. Uh, on, the, on our advent calendar nativity, we have some palm trees. Um, there's a tropical nativity. <laughs> uh, we've got uh, the baby Jesus. We've got a manger type deal. Um, Mary and Joseph, then we've got maybe a few shepherds, right? And then you've got... Uh, who else is in there? Anybody? A little drummer boy? Yeah, there's definitely a guy on a drum kit. Just, no. Uh, <laughs> the three wise men I heard, right? I've heard, 
heard that out there. So what Bug was doing is taking our general understanding of this scene, our traditional understanding, what we've been handed down, and he was kind of sort of opening our eyes to how maybe we have misinterpreted it, maybe not seen it for what it really is, uh, and what was actually happening back in the day of Jesus, and helping us get into this picture of what was really happening when Jesus came into the world. And so I want to like have a little bit of fun, which is to go into our understanding of this story by giving us a little quiz this morning. Uh, you're going to love this. So I have on here some questions. Which animals does the Bible say were present at Jesus' birth? Is it A, sheep and goats? B, cows, or sorry, cows, sheep, and goats. B, cows, donkeys, goats. C, sheep and goats only. D, miscellaneous barnyard animals. Or E, none of the above. Just yell out your answer. What do you think? D, we got a D, miscellaneous barnyard animal. Anybody for sheep and goats only? Oh, yeah, we got a couple sheep and goats only. Uh, what's the answer, John? You got it here? None of the above. The Bible does not say anything about animals present at the birth of Jesus. Isn't that fun? Okay, next question. How many magi, wise men, came to see Jesus? Was it A, 3, B, 6, C, 9, D, 12, E, we don't know. How many for 3? We got some threes out there? Any twelves out there? No twelves. I don't see any twelves. We don't know, anybody? We don't know. Okay. All right, next question. According to the Bible, who saw the star in the east? Was it A, the shepherds? B, Mary and Joseph? C, three kings? D, both A and C? Or E, none of these? Anyone for A? Shepherds? Shepherds saw the star in the east? No? Three kings. Anybody for the three kings? Okay, we got some three kings people out there. E, none of these? You guys are catching on. None of these. None of these. It was the magi that saw it. We don't know that they were kings, and we don't know how many of them there were. So, sorry. Wasn't the king. That's a trick question. All right, next question. According to the Bible... How did Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem? A, was it by camel? B, donkey? C, Tesla? B, no, C, Joseph walked and Mary rode a donkey? D, the Bible does not say. C, Joseph walked and Mary rode a donkey? Who's in for that one? Yes, all right. Answer, survey says, the Bible does not say. All right, next question, here we go. According to the Bible... Where did the wise men find Jesus? Was it in A, a manger, B, a stable, C, a house, or D, the Bible does not say? Yeah, you're just going with D now, just to, you know, right? Like, oh, I'll just say D. All right, anybody say, I heard C out there. Somebody got it, C, in a house. Yes. Yeah, come on. All right, next one. Where, what did the innkeeper say to Mary and Joseph? Was it A, there is no room in the inn, B, I have a stable you can use, C, both A and B, or D, our guest room is currently being used? All right, survey says, the Bible makes no mention of an innkeeper. Oh, 
That one was rigged from the beginning. Sorry, guys. There's not even a mention of the innkeeper. Man, right? It's implied that there's an innkeeper. Here's the thing. This is arguably the biggest holiday in our culture. And it's centered on this story of the nativity and this idea of Jesus coming into the world. And yet, the details are sort of fuzzy and suspect, right? Like, we didn't do great on that test. I didn't do great on that test, and I wrote it, you know? So it's like, it's tough. What is happening? What have, we, what have we come to understand is happening in this scene? And how, thousands of years later, did it turn into this thing where, well, the day after Thanksgiving, we go shopping and we buy all these gifts because we have to give them away on, you know. Jesus doesn't talk about his birth in his ministry. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, I'm super into birthdays. And so when mine comes around... We're going we're gonna to really make a big deal about it. We're going to cut down trees. We're going to decorate them. We're going to put some, you know, we're going to give a ton of gifts away because I got gifts from these three wise men, these three kings, right? We misunderstand what happened. So what I want to talk about this morning is what happened <laughs> that morning. When you look at that scene, no matter what you see when you look at that nativity scene, whether it be a Playmobil nativity scene, or you see the one as you're driving by on the 5 freeway, I want you to think of one in particular thing that happened that day, which is the incarnation. This is when God became flesh. That's what we're going to talk about. See, the idea of God coming to earth in bodily form that would grow into this Christ figure that we, we know as Jesus of Nazareth. He did grow, by the way, right? He had a beard. I think of like this old, there's an old movie, Will Ferrell movie, where they, they're praying and they're saying, oh, dear baby Jesus, you know? And, 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 oh, sweet baby Jesus, just, you know, nine pounds, ten ounces, barely a word on his lips, you know? We just ask that. No, Jesus grew into a full human being with, he had a beard, you know? He was, he was a man. And sometimes our faith and our understanding of Jesus can stay in this infantile place. And yet Jesus wants us to have this adult spirituality with a childlike faith. Okay? And actually that childlike faith is mature. That way of trusting in this relationship, in this person, in this reality, that is actually maturity. The way that my children trust me, depend on me for provision, protection, and direction in their lives is the same way that we are to trust and believe in Jesus for those same things. Now that's really hard because relationships are, are, are tricky, right? It's, it's dynamic. It's two ways. It's not just one thing that you control. That's why religion is so attractive, right? Religion is so much more attractive than a relationship with Jesus because we can control religion. We can control the information. And this was happening in the day of Jesus too, right? So God looks at the earth and he determines that something needs to be done for humanity. And what does he do? Does he send us a book 
with a ton of information? Does he send us promises? How does he, how does he purpose to solve the issue of this separation between God and man? He sends a person, a relationship. And it's so, it's so simple that it's profound, right? Because we actually would probably prefer the book. The book's easier. It's easier to, to control the book. Just give me a list of the things that I need to do. Just lay out the principles. He didn't send principles. He sent a person. Now, that person with him comes principles, the book that he, you know, inspired in so many ways. It's so much comes out of that, but it's this relationship that God says, here, I'm going to give you a person, right? And in Jesus, we have Emmanuel is what his God with us, God with us. And that has all sorts of implications, right? And that's what we're going to get into. We're going to get into all those implications that God came with to be with us. He's knowable. He's knowable. In the Jesus story, God gets into a body, into a human being, and he becomes knowable. And full disclosure, I, I, I've stolen all these thoughts from my friends Rob, Steve, and, and Richard. Uh, and one of these thoughts is that you know, that you, you know when you know someone and you know when you don't, Right? Like, some of my work brings me to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., where I sit in the same room as the President of the United States. And so for many years, I sat in the same room uh, as Barack Obama and had breakfast. However, I know that I don't know him, and I know that he doesn't know me. Right? I may know a lot about Barack Obama. I could read, you know, I may know a lot about Donald Trump. But I know that I don't know him, and I know that he doesn't know me. You know what I'm saying? It's easy to know about, like I can read the book, right? You can read the book about Jesus and not know Jesus, right? You follow me here? Because there's a point where, where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciple Peter. This is in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. And he says, hey, who do, who do they say that I am? Who is everyone saying that I am, Peter? He says, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at him and says, but who do you say that I am, Peter? You know me. We've been walking together. Not you know about me, not you read the book, not you did, you know me. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah, he says, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is a radical thought for me, right? Flesh and blood did not reveal it. The flesh and blood Jesus cannot reveal Jesus. That's weird. That's weird to me. There is some function of the Spirit of God that will take place in your knowing and until that happens, you know about God, right? So I, and I'm, I'm just saying, look, I can't control that. So you can read the book and you can do all the things, 
But until that function of the Spirit reveals to you and that you know God, you have met Jesus, and he is resurrected, and he is knowable, and his Spirit is alive and moving all throughout, you know about God, and that's good. It's good to know about God, and it's good that your relationship with God would then urge you to want to know more about God, to read the scripture, to understand what he said, what he did, how he lived, because he shows us how to be truly human. But here's the thing. How you, how you feel about your body, how you fit into your body, how you understand your body, mind, and soul, all these things, it actually matters in this whole incarnation thing about Jesus and knowing Jesus as a person. So my... My upbringing in my church time, a lot of the sermons were geared towards Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, and it left out his humanity, right? Jesus was also human, right? There's these old pictures um, that you've probably seen in Catholic icons. I don't think I have one in there, do I? I don't, no, good, thanks, John. Uh, where he's standing there and he's looking, you know, uh, white and has long, dark hair, and he looks really delicate in all these pictures, but uh, he ha he's doing this. Have you seen this? And he's kind of looking off. And, right? And uh, there's usually like a, a, a heart that's like kind of on fire in this area and a, maybe a big, round, glowing circle around him. And what is this? This right here is humanity and divinity. And he's saying, I'm holding both of them together, both humanity and divinity. So when you see that old icon, remember, like, let that remind you. I'm holding both of these together, humanity and divinity, and let's not forget the humanity. See, it was, it was uh, it, we get into that, and it's a mystery, right? And we get into these old, these old ways of thinking, uh, like Plato. You guys have heard of Plato, right? Aristotle, Socrates, big-time philosophers. Plato talked about this theory of the forms, that there's the physical, and then there's the metaphysical, and there's these things that you can touch, and then there's things that we can't touch that still exist, right? Like your junior high heartbreak, for instance. You know, you, you have it. It's there. But if I were to pull you apart down to the last atom, where would I find it, Right? Where is that junior high heartbreak? Where is that memory of the birth of your child? Where is that joy in you? So that there's this physical stuff you can touch, and then there's this other metaphysical, spiritual stuff as well. And that, is, that goes into who we are. Both of those things make up who we are. But I always thought, well, these two are very much separate. And so I had all these verses that played in my head about that idea. And so I, here are some of those verses. Uh, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? And Romans 7.24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So there's this sense in which how can me and my body be separate? Right? There's, there are two different things. And then... As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So you have these, these, this separation that my body was, and this idea that my body was weak, it was bad, it was something that needed to be controlled, right? Something we need to tame 
There's another verse in Scripture right here. But Paul comes in and says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I, sh- I myself should be disqualified. So I have this view of my body also like as a car, right? Like we can think, think Carrie Underwood. I think, uh, oh, Jesus, take, Jesus, take the wheel. Uh, Jesus, take the wheel just isn't about her like spinning out on black ice in her car, but it's about how her life, the life she was living wasn't working. She couldn't do it on her own, so she pleads with Jesus to take control of her life, right? Uh, but then I was, I was reading some more, and I came across this passage that I want to share with you. This is Richard. Uh, and I, I know you're going to feel this with me. Our sense of, go back one more. One more. There it is. Yeah, no, this it doesn't all fit on the slide, unfortunately. That's going to be interesting. Um, our sense of shame and guilt seems to localize in the body, right? The body ages and it dies, and so it looks inferior, inferior but actually the soul can age and die too, he says. And that is probably what we meant by the word hell, he says. Both body and soul are on a journey. And of all people, Christians should have known that the flesh is not bad, right? Not a bad word. In fact, the word became flesh, the word became flesh. John 1.14, according to the inspired words of John's gospel. Unfortunately, he says Paul used that same word, flesh, which is sarx in the Greek. And it can mean like flesh, meat, body, and it can also mean sinful nature. Uh, but, but Paul used it in a most judgmental and dualistic way. And that is, that's the one that most of us remember, right? And it got us up, off to a bad start is what he says. See, what happens in this way of thinking that essentially your body is evil and cannot be trusted. It's this weak thing. It's frail. We carry so much shame in our bodies. And I would argue that here in Orange County, we carry an extra amount of shame in our bodies because you guys are all fabulously looking. And, and so we walk around comparing ourselves to one another. And, you know, this is the land of CrossFit gyms and... Uh, vitamins and all the things that you need to make yourself, you know, we've got salons for everything. Just to blow dry your hair, you can go somewhere. And there's all sorts of things that, that we do to look a certain way because we carry so much shame in our physical bodies. <laughs> and you, you can see why Paul is saying, like, who will rescue me from this body of death, Right? I mean, I feel like all of our souls are crying out that same message of like, oh, to be free of just having to like care for this thing and make it look a certain way for everybody. It's tough. So I think essentially your body is evil, cannot be trusted, so you need to surrender control of it to Jesus. But then Paul writes, I discipline my body and keep it under control. He does that himself, but I thought Jesus was supposed to take the wheel, and it's, it all gets confusing, right? Who, who's supposed to take care of this thing? But it teaches us that ourselves, our whole selves, is a mysterious thing. It's a mysterious thing, that we have bodies we have spirits, we have self-control, and we have will. And they're very much connected to form what we have as an identity. 
as a self-image. Part of what it means to be me, John Eshelman, is to be in this body. Because if you take me out of this body, it's really hard to find me and recognize me. <laughs> right? <laughs> Part of what it means to be you is to be located in your body. And that's not a bad thing. But we've made it this bad thing. So one of the main problems that we have in our spiritual life is our attachment to this self-image. One of the main problems you have in your spiritual life is your attachment to your self-image. Whether that self-image is positive or negative. I mean, we have to begin somewhere with some kind of identity, with some kind of ego, with some kind of sense of self, right? To understand what that even means. But then we get attached to it. Ooh, I like myself. Or I don't. We get attached to that, but we feel this need to promote that sense of self, to protect it, and we really want other people to admire it. And I would say that the Instagram and the filters on our phones, you know there's like a filter on the new phones that you can't, I mean, it's just automatically built in, so you're going to look better no matter what. Isn't that weird? Like, I, there's like forums online about this deal. Like, uh, maybe it does a little bit of, you know, touch up on you. You don't even realize. I'm like, this is crazy. Our technology now, when you take a picture, it will automatically, unless you turn that thing off on your phone, it's automatically built in that your skin is going to look extra glowing. And those crow's feet and those little, you know, blemishes, they're going to kind of just fade into the colors around it because that's how smart your phone is. It can figure out how to make you look the way you think you should look, right? Or the way that culture is telling you to look. What would it like, I mean, we live in such a filtered culture. You know, it's so hard. You just, I stand there at the checkout at Ralph's, and it's like all those magazines are there. And I'm like, you know, praise God for the Inquirer that, like, shows the actual picture, you know? Because <laughs> right next to it is, like, self, and you're like, well, that's not myself, you know? <laughs> But you're like, oh, there's a real picture, and they just look haggard, <laughs> like, right, in, in, our, in our terms. But really, that's just how people should look. It's just normal. It's just human. The self thing is, a, you know, that's an illusion. <laughs> it's, it's like, I was showing Anna a picture yesterday of a Christmas card of my family and I from 1995. And I was like, would you have gone out with this guy? And... <laughs> And the answer was obviously no, but I had like some McDonald's arches haircut going thing, and I, it was cool then, it, may, it might be cool again now, but, uh, and it was kind of like semi-bleached orange or something, I don't, it was bad. Uh, and then I had all this acne and stuff going on, and, and, but, but then I think back to like my senior picture, you know, from that same year, and it's like, man, they really, they captured me. The lighting is good. You know, the hair was right, and the face, there's no acne, just the right skin tone. Like, that's me, right? Like, finally, they, they got it. They got it. But there's, it's airbrushed, right? We're trying so hard to establish ourselves, our self-image, to control it, to prop it up, to promote it, to give it out to everybody, so it will be liked. And it's so flimsy, and it's actually not even real. 
It's not true in that sense. It's not solid. It can be touched, right? It can be broken. It can be smashed. But who we are in Christ, in the incarnation, is a different thing. I have a verse here, Galatians 2.20, that I like. I have been crucified with Christ. So that self-image, that thing that you're trying so hard, what, what Paul is saying, that thing, I have, I have taken up my instrument of execution, which Jesus says, you need to take up your cross daily in order to be my apprentice. Those are his words. If you want to come after me and be my apprentice, literally daily you need to take up some sort of, and we're talking metaphorical here, way of killing that self-image that you're trying so hard to prop up for everybody else. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's mysterious. That's a little bit of that spirit. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, childlike, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. Oh, for if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were through your filters, if righteousness were through your accomplishments, through your salary, through your house, through your car, through your education, through your fitness, then Christ died for no purpose. If, that's, if that stuff is what makes you who you are, then what's the point of Christ dying for you? To give you an unbreakable identity. For if righteousness were through the law, were through what you could do, what you could muscle up, how fast you could run, how thin you could get, how much you could make, then grace cannot work there. You have been crucified with Christ. See, we, we don't like our bodies, <laughs> most of us. We can see every little flaw when we look in the mirror. Everything that we wish we could change, wish was different. And that's, that's our constant reminder. We look, in the, we look in the mirror, constantly reminded, oh, I'm stuck in this thing. And Jesus comes to us God in flesh comes to us and says, it's really good to be human. If we were so separated from God, if, if God was against us, God was angry at us, God was mad at us, one, he could just wipe us out and start over and say, yeah, that was a failed project. <laughs> but that would go against our theology, right? God doesn't fail. But what does he do? He decides, you know what I'm going to do? I think it's so good. I'm going to become human. I'm going to come and be with them. And it was this declaration that in his birth, in his incarnation, that it is good, good to be human. 
and we have clouded it with our own self-image, say, oh, it's good to be the kind of human that culture says I'm supposed to be, and it's good to be the kind of human that I think I should be, rather than it's good to just be human and be with God, with Jesus. The life of Jesus is a glimpse of just how great being human can be. And none of us would agree with that. <laughs> like, really? The guy, like, got crucified. How good is that? Tortured. Had no home. Had no car. That we know of. He did get places awful quickly sometimes. No. Uh, he didn't have all the things that we would hold up as admirable. As the things that give you a good self-image. He didn't have those things. But he had love, and he had grace, and he had compassion, and he had mercy, and he, he brought healing, and he brought vision, and he brought hope. Jesus wants to put to death the world of our counting, our measuring, our judging, our filtering, our deserving, our punishing, all these sorts of things. And I'd argue that we're really good at that stuff. But that kind of stuff makes the world of grace largely inaccessible. And God is love. So God's not for that. So the more we live in the world of counting and measuring and judging and punishing and all of that, the more we don't live in the grace of God. So he's calling us forward to a different kind of living. Like in the, uh, this was a thought the other day that was shared by my friend Steve. He just said, do you know how you have your sins forgiven? You forgive. At least according to Jesus. And again, this could be another thing where religion has taught us a different thing, right? Well, if you confess your sins, yes, all of that. He's faithful and just to forgive us. But he also says, if you forgive your brother their sins, your father will be faithful to forgive you your sins. But if you don't forgive your brother their sins, then your father in heaven also will not forgive you your sins. That's scary, right? So if you, apparently, all you have to do if you, want to forgive, if you want forgiveness is forgive. But that's calling you out into a different way of being. That's tough. It's much easier religiously if we've established a maxim that says, well, if I do this thing, then I get this thing. If I say this, then I get that. And it says here in this, and I can, I have the book. It tells me. And Jesus says, no, no, we're in a relationship here. This is real. This is, this is, this is of spirit, flesh, bone, sweat, dirt, Consciousness. This next slide, uh, this is uh, Franciscans, they say, uh, Roar, he says, the incarnation, Jesus coming, was already the redemption, he says, because in Jesus' birth, God was already saying it was good to be human. And God, God moves to our side. It wasn't that God came up to the line and said, okay, you guys aren't getting it. Let me show you, I've got a chalkboard and humanity. This is how we're going to do it. You need to move, and you over here, and you got to stop doing that, and you this, and you that. God just says, I'm going to come, 
and be with you guys. Right? He just comes and he's like, all right, I'm here. Let's do this. Let's do this human thing. And it's good to be human. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 131, where he looked at his creation and said, it was very good. Very good. And yet we have this sense of which this is bad. I got to get out of here. I got to escape this place and get to some other place. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'll come to you guys because it's good to be with you guys. It's good to be one of you guys. But you got to find yourself in me. And I will find myself in you. I love the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. Is anybody else's favorite? It's one of my favorites. Uh, and our friend Hoku uh, has a rendition of it, and it's fabulous. I got to hear it this weekend at uh, the Christmas Together concert. And, whew, sacred. But there's this line, long lay the world in sin and error pining uh, till he appeared, till Jesus appeared in flesh, and the soul, so there's the flesh, and here again, the, the body and the soul felt what? It's, it's worth. See, the world is still pining, still longing, still have desire. That's part of what it means to be human, is to desire things, to want things, to long for something. We all experience a longing, a desire, a want. We all experience suffering, a loss. But desire, we all desire. We cannot not desire. We cannot not love. It's a terrible double negative. Sorry, no eloquence there. But it's the only way I can think of to say it. It's just how we are as human beings. And God's de God decides to show up not as a program, not as a system, not as an institution, not as a book, but as a person, a relationship. And suddenly the soul, that thing within this thing, starts to feel like, ah. Oh, it's good to be human. There's worthiness here. God approves going all the way back to Genesis 1.31. And so God sends us away in Jesus to himself, a relationship, which also happens to be the way to our own true self. In Colossians 3.3, Paul writes this. He says, for you have died, that self image that you're propping up and your life is hidden with Christ in God and when Christ who is your life that source that thing that you cannot control that flesh and blood cannot reveal is revealed when he when that is appears then you also appear in glory and I've always thought about this as something far off until just like a few hours ago I feel like days ago but when that thing pops up in you that is Christ, there's a glory there. That's Jesus' prayer. Uh, you know, the, in John 17, go back and read it. It's so new agey and weird. I get it. But it's also just what Jesus says, so we got to deal with it. Us and them and them and us and I and you and you and me. And there's this, there's this connectivity that flesh and blood cannot reveal and that you cannot control through interpreting the book and that kind of thing. It's just either you, you know if you know them and you know if you don't, and there's a function of the spirit there that you cannot control. And that's tough. But that's part of the beauty of a relationship. You get to just 
God becomes knowable. In Jesus, knowable. Largely before Jesus, we know very little about God and we generally misunderstand him as this angry giant thing out there somewhere that somehow controls all of our crops and everything else and occasionally strikes things dead and gives us visions and we just have no frame of reference until God incarnates and says, this is, this is what I'm like. I have come to clarify my person and my purposes in this person of Jesus. And it's forgiveness and it's mercy and it's compassion and it's love and it's healing and it's truth. The whole context is love. So when you see the nativity, when you drive by on the freeway, here's the things I want you to think. One, it's good to be human. It's so good to be human. Two, God is with us and for us. Not against us, not angry at us, not punishing us, but has come to be with us and for us. And three, you are the beloved son of God, daughter of God. You're the beloved son and daughter of God. This is your true self that is hidden with Christ in God. So how you live and move in this world matters. Move in love because you are loved. And your humanity, your, your humanity is good. You bear the image of God. That goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Don't, don't, you have to begin in the beginning. You bear his image. You bear the image of God. And it is good. And I, I feel like we get away from that. And God says, I got I to gotta do something. So he sends a human, Jesus, to be with us. God in a bod, as they said. It's a mystery. So let us go from this place revealing more love, more of our true selves, more of, more of who we were, were created in Christ to be, right? Not more of our religion, not more of our separation, not more of our judgment. By the way, if you want to be judged, just judge. That's all you got to do. If you want judgment, just judge other people. That's at least according to Jesus. If you want forgiveness, just forgive. Just forgive. So this season, when you're around the table celebrating the birth, celebrating the incarnation, and you're with that family member, you're, you're thinking about that friend, you're the business partner, the ex, whoever it may be, that son, that daughter that is gone, that is betrayed, whoever it is, you have an opportunity because you know him through the power of the Spirit, to make that decision to say, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to love. I'm going to show compassion. I'm not going to judge. I'm going to be the manifestation of this thing that we call Christ. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. If the body was so bad, why would he use that as the metaphor? Why would, why would that be the metaphor? It's good to be human. And Jesus shows us that. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray. We're going to sing some more songs. I hope you guys have a great Christmas. Thanks for letting me share this morning. It's just good to be with you guys. I know so many of you. It's 
big group hug right here. I can do that with my purview, but not yours. But yeah, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you. We're, we're grateful that, one, we believe you're here with us in the power of your spirit. We know that when you looked on the earth and you saw all that was going on, that you determined the best course of action was to become one of us. To remind us. To declare to us, one, that you love us deeply and will not stand to be separate from us. Two, that what you've made, your creation is good and to be celebrated as it finds its source and its identity in you. In him we live and move and have our being. Lord, let us not forget that this fullness of life is available to us in you. And we experience that fullness when, I, when we find ourselves in you. And Lord, I ask that your spirit would reveal yourself to everyone in this room. And whatever obstacles are in the way of that, Lord, may we have the, the courage to drop those things, those defenses, those blocks, whether it be our own interpretations of the scripture or our own wounds from the past, would you break through all of that so that you might call us blessed and reveal yourself to us in a tangible way where we would know you, know you. I ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.